Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. This evening, it is Friday, November 20th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I find it difficult to believe that this year is just about over. It feels like it just started. I decided this week to take a break from our commentary on the Wisdom of Solomon, which I may resume for one more week next Friday, and the week following have an open forum at Christagenia, or perhaps, I'm sorry, next Friday have an open forum at Christagenia, and the week following commence with the Wisdom of Solomon. I believe that is what my schedule dictates as Melissa and I plan on attending the League of the South Christmas party the first week of December. I had some technical challenges at Christagenia this week, and rather than writing the next portion of our commentary on the Wisdom of Solomon, I decided to take a break. It's not really a break. It still took me a day and a half to prepare, and decided to present a paper by Clifton Emmerheiser, and I wish Clifton had many more papers I could present. This is the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. In his Watchman's Teaching Letters for 2002, Clifton Emmerheiser had sought to explain elements of the books of the prophet Daniel and the Revelation in an endeavor to refute the fallacies of what we call futurism and preterism and to demonstrate the importance of the historical or historicist interpretation of prophecy as a key to understanding the word of Yahweh our God. Doing that, Clifton had many other digressions as he progressed, and he discussed the two different, posi- two different descriptions of a little horn in Daniel in different ways. This shorter paper, The Little Horn of Daniel chapter 7 verse 8, was compiled from those studies. Among denominational Christians, there are many foolish ways to interpret scripture. They give them fancy names. They make many labels in order to describe them. There is futurism. There is full preterism. There is partial preterism. Then there is millennialism, which is also called kiliasm. Then there is amillennialism, the opposite, a disbelief in millennialism, which is also called kiligorism. Then there is premillennialism and postmillennialism. And some of these overlap or encompass one another. There are even pan-millennialists, who apparently believe that in the end, eschatology is not important at all because evidently they also believe that everyone gets a participation trophy from God. Nearly all of these labels mean nothing to us. In fact, actually, none of these labels mean anything to us, as they only represent insidious refinements 
of three basic ideas. To describe them briefly, futurists maintain that all so-called end times prophecy is yet to take place, generally over a seven-year span at some distant time in the future. But preterists believe that all prophecy was fulfilled by 70 AD. And therefore, I can only assume that they also think that ever since that time, Jesus has been hanging around in some sort of limbo, helplessly waiting for us to come to him. There are partial preterists which believe that most prophecy was fulfilled by 70 AD, but there are still a few things hanging around for the future. But historicists understand that prophecy has been unfolding all along. And as the time has passed, it has been incrementally fulfilled. As various of the apostles had testified on more than one occasion, We are already in the so-called end times, or the last days, ever since the first incarnation of the Christ. These descriptions may not be perfect or satisfy everyone, but they are generally accurate. I must also state, observing the attitude of the so-called pan-millennialists, that if the laws of God and the history presented in the Bible are not important to someone, then neither is eschatology, the study of the end times, because he will never be able to learn anything from that study. So eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you shall die, even if tomorrow takes longer than a day to get here. However, historicists also often make fools of themselves. A notable example is found in the popular interpretations of the messages to the seven churches in the Revelation, which make each of them out to be particular periods in the history of Christianity. Some historicists have gone so far as to attach precise dates to the duration of each of those churches right up to modern times, believing that each of them reflected the attitudes or spiritual conditions of the church in particular historical periods. But none of that can be deduced from the text. And all seven of those churches were addressed contemporaneously in the present tense at the time when John had written, and they had each existed at that time. When we examine the messages to each church and compare them to the world around us, we see that there are aspects of each message which are still fully apparent among the Christians of today. So the seven churches were always here, and they never left. So they don't have specific periods in which they existed. That's ridiculous. It cannot be deduced from the text. Other traps for historicists are date setting 
for prophecies, which themselves do not necessarily describe dates for or assign dates to particular events. Especially when setting dates for prophecies which have not necessarily been fulfilled. As if we can know they're going to happen in the future. Or forcing interpretations to fit the events of their own times. As men often esteem their own times to be of critical importance. As if God cares about you so much or as if you care about God so much that the end has to come in your time. As we have often said, the prophecy of God does not exist so that men can foretell the future. Rather, it exists so that we, observing history, can look back and see that God is true. Now we may add, that if we draw the correct lessons from the past and from prophecy, we may be better able to understand what is happening in the present. But we will still not be able to predict the future because while the word of God is indeed true, we cannot tell how it is going to be fulfilled. Not until it gets here. Far too often, prophecies have been fulfilled in ways that men could never have imagined. For example, the Israelites being forced to the shores of the Red Sea never foresaw the parting of the sea. And the apostles never foresaw the betrayal of Judas and the crucifixion of Christ even after Christ had told them what was going to happen. Understanding at least many of the potential traps and pitfalls which an interpreter of prophecy must consider, it is nevertheless quite obvious that there are prophecies, especially in Daniel, which were not fulfilled until long after the time of Christ, long after 70 AD, but which have indeed been fulfilled. The most significant of them are found in Daniel chapters 2, 7, and 8. In Daniel chapter 2, we see a description of an image of a man with major body parts made of four different metals, each of them representing a world empire which would rule one after another wheresoever the children of men dwell. Daniel, informing Nebuchadnezzar that he himself had represented the image's head of gold, we must look to the succeeding empires, the Persian, Greek, and Roman, for the other three parts of the image. As the other three were described as kingdoms which would follow his own. Those empires certainly do seem to fit the descriptions of the various parts of the image of the beast. And speaking of the end of the fourth and final kingdom of the image, the Roman Empire and its fall are clearly described 
and that did not happen for several centuries after 70 AD. These facts and many other obviously correct historical interpretations of prophecy should make both preterists and futurists quite uncomfortable. Some years later, as it is described in Daniel chapter 7, the prophet had a similar vision of four beasts and dominion being given to each of them in succession. It is evident that these represent the same world empires as those which were prophesied in the vision of Daniel chapter 2, although they are being described from a different perspective. The vision in Daniel chapter 7 also covers a somewhat broader scope and describes things which followed the passing of the fourth empire, the Roman Empire, which the vision in chapter 2 did not describe. This is another instance of Hebrew parallelism, even if the chapters are not consecutive. And as a digression, which I have not explained in my notes, if you examine chapters 2 through 7 of Daniel, there's actually a shift in the historical circumstances from the rule of the Babylonians to the rule of the Persians, and then back to the rule of the Babylonians, which proves, among other aspects of Daniel, that the chapters of the book of Daniel aren't even in the original order, that the Jews screwed that up 2,500 years ago, or maybe 2,400 years ago. Who knows? They were already screwed up by the time that the Septuagint was translated. The chapters in the book of Daniel are not in their proper order. It is very clear just by looking at the opening verse of each of the chapters of the book. That's another story. So here, concerning Daniel chapter 7, we shall read those opening verses of the chapter, the first seven verses. In the first year of Belshazzar, now, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar 2 is the king of the first parts of the prophecy of Daniel. And he did rule over Babylon for quite a long time. I don't remember in my head exactly how long, but it was over 40 years. He ascended the throne around 605 BC and ruled well into the 560s BC and probably beyond that. Now, after he, after he had passed on, several Babylonian kings and several usurpers had ruled Babylon until the Persians came and conquered it and, and removed the Babylonian kings from power. They never destroyed the city, but they did invade and win the city for themselves. So... One of the kings towards the end of the Babylonian Empire was Nabonidus, and his son Belshazzar was co-regent. Belshazzar, Belshazzar was in Babylon with Daniel, as Nabonidus was out fighting wars against the Persians and losing. So that sets a small background, a, a sketch of a background for Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, 
Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spoke and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld to the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth, and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. With this understanding, it is evident that the first beast was the Babylonian Empire, and the second the Persian. The three ribs in the mouth of the bear represent the territory of the three former empires which the Persians came to rule over, the Egyptian, Assyrian, and Babylonian. Then came the Empire of Alexander, which, like a leopard, came very quickly and passed very quickly, and the Greeks divided it into four parts as soon as he died. Hence, the four heads of that beast. Finally, the fourth beast represents the Roman Empire, and the subsequent passages related to things which had transpired in history after it also had passed. The subsequent passages, the passages which follow verse 7. This is the historicist view of prophecy. If it seems to be preterist, or as some fools claim, partially preterist, that is only because now we are looking back nearly 26 years after Daniel wrote, and over 1,500 years after the passing of the fourth beast empire of his visions. But in Daniel's time, at least some of the interpretation would have seemed to be futurist because it had not yet been fulfilled and therefore it could not as of yet have been identified or its fulfillment described by men. Men cannot explain the fulfillment of any prophecy until after it happens and they have had time to reflect on it. So it was also with the apostles and the gospel and ministry of Christ. 
Now this brings us to the little horn of verse 8 of Daniel chapter 7. And the subject in the title of Clifton's paper. So he begins. The little horn of Daniel 7 verse 8. Daniel chapter 7 verse 8. And he says, to begin our subject, we must understand that there are two little horns in the book of Daniel. First, the Catholic Pope, and second, Mohammed. The following is what I said, what Clifton had said, in Watchman's teaching letter number 55. And in that teaching letter, he is only quoting from the previous one. So he begins and says, in Watchman's teaching letter number 54, for October 2002, we discussed the little horn of Daniel chapter 8, verse 9. As I had pointed out, the little horn in that passage is not the same as the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. How often have you read or heard something referring to the little horn of Daniel, but they never indicate which little horn of Daniel they are talking about? To many, both of these little horns are the same entity in their reasoning, and that simply is not true. To comprehend where we are on our walk through Daniel, you will need back issues, and Clifton's referring to his other teaching letters where he spoke about this subject, in Numbers 49, 53, and 54. And he says, in this lesson, number 54, we established that the little horn of Daniel chapter 8, verse 9, was Mohammed. Now Clifton concludes from that citation. With this paper, we will only consider the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. This is imperative to grasp the book of Revelation. Actually, they're both imperative to help understand Revelation. But an understanding of this prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 is indeed a prerequisite to understanding the prophecy of Revelation chapter 13. Or perhaps it may be said that once Daniel chapter 7 is interpreted historically, a corollary interpretation of Revelation chapter 13 may justly be ascertained. In Daniel chapter 7, there is a series of beast empires described as beasts, and then a little horn which comes up out from the head of the last of those beasts. This interpretation of these first eight verses is reaffirmed later in the chapter, especially in verses 17, 20, and thereafter, where it is explicitly explained that they are beasts, that those beasts are kingdoms which would come to rule. Then, much later, in Revelation chapter 13, there is a description of two beasts which shall rule over men successively. And it is evident that the first beast was also a description of that same series of empires found prophesied in Daniel, while the second beast, which comes from the wounded head of the first, 
is an entity which would rule over men after the first beast had passed. Much in the same way that we describe, we see described of this little horn here in Daniel chapter 7. So, continuing with Clifton, he says, rather tersely, symbolic prophecies with a colon. In chapter 7 and 8, we are dealing with symbolic rather than literal interpretation. Both of these symbolic prophecies are concerned with little horns representing powers that arise out of two of the beasts that represent great empires of history. Notice they are not those great empires themselves, but specific powers that rose out of them. And in other words, in Daniel chapter 7, there is a little horn which arises from the head of the fourth beast of the visions at the beginning of that chapter. The visions which were described at the beginning of that chapter. The fourth beast being the Roman Empire. The horn comes from the head of that beast. But in Daniel chapter 8, there was a different vision, one of a ram that magnified and enlarged itself, but which was opposed by a goat that had destroyed it. The great horn of the goat was then broken, and four notable ones arose to replace it. So that vision is a separate vision which also describes the Persian Empire and that of the Greeks which follow it. As Alexander died, that great horn, and his empire was divided into four pieces amongst his generals, the four notable horns. The little horn of Daniel chapter 8 would in turn arise from amongst one of those pieces meaning from one of the lands which they had ruled. The interpretation of the ram, the goat, and the little horn at the end of that chapter certainly does fit Mohammed and the rise of Islam. However, the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 is clearly a different entity arising from a different place. Now Clifton proceeds by discussing one of his sources. He didn't cite this source yet, but he will very, very soon. Although William Fowler, William Fowler erred in his end-time revelation, he was quite an accomplished prophecy student. It is regrettable there are not more men of his caliber today and I didn't have time to track down that book from Clifton's library before making this presentation. Perhaps one day soon I will. On pages 126 through 28 of his book, he explained the little horn in Daniel chapter 7 as the fourth or the Roman Empire, where he stated, Daniel had a dream in which he saw four great beasts, the fourth having ten horns, among which an eleventh little horn sprang up. 
In the interpretation, we are told that the four beasts represent four kingdoms or empires. And the ten horns are ten kings or kingdoms that arise out of the last empire. None of the empires are named, but it is widely assumed that they are the same as the four empires represented by parts of the metallic image in chapter 2. The four beasts and the ten horns of the fourth beast only serve to introduce, identify, and locate the little horn that forms the main feature of this prophecy. This clearly represents a person of power, hostile to the children of Yahweh. Fowler spelled Yahweh with a V instead of an English W, which is fine. For we are told that it made war with the saints and would prevail for a time two times, and a half time. As we have previously shown somewhere earlier in Fowler's book, and it is also correct, I must say, as we have previously shown, this is equivalent to 1,260 prophetic days or years. 360 times 3 plus 180 equaling 1,260. So far, there is nothing in Fowler's interpretations with which we could disagree. The error which Clifton refers to is evidently in the next paragraph concerning the Alemanni, a Germanic tribe. But notice that in both Daniel chapters 2 and 7, the saints of the Most High come to world hegemony in place of the beasts which had ruled it previously. In Daniel chapter 2, they themselves have a role in the destruction of those empires. And in Daniel chapter 7, the little horn would make war with them and prevail over them, at least temporarily. So this is a Hebrew parallelism, two ways to describe the same thing even though they aren't exactly consecutive. Who knows? In the original versions of Daniel's writing, they may have been consecutive. It doesn't matter. The chapters are all out of order. So continuing with Clifton's citation of Fowler, he wrote, to identify the ten horns of the fourth beast, which was the Roman Empire, one has but to examine history, which records that ten kingdoms arose after 476 AD in the western half of the Roman Empire, while the eastern half continued to flourish. History also reveals that Justinian, at the head of the eastern Roman Empire at Constantinople, subdued three of the ten kingdoms which were established in the western half of the Roman Empire after the fall of Imperial Rome. These were, and these are Fowler's words, these were the Vandals, whose kingdom had been established in North Africa. The Ostrogoths, who had established a kingdom in Italy, and the Alemannian kingdom of North Italy, or he said North of Italy, I'm sorry. And 
now he's quoting verse 24, and he shall be diverse from the first and shall subdue three kings. Then Fowler goes on to state, Justinian, as the head of the civil government, united the interest of the church and established the temporal power of the papacy, which clearly fulfilled the prophetic little horn by dominating Europe for 1260 years until curtailed by Napoleon, counting that as 538 A.D. to 1798 A.D. And now Clifton adds a parenthetical note at the end of the paragraph, and he says, in rather terse language, abbreviated language, ten-toed provinces equal ten horns. And then he says, correction, the three kingdoms equal Italy, Africa, and Spain, but not the Alemanni. And there we partially agree with Clifton. Of course, this note reflects a diverse opinion from that of Fowler. But Fowler certainly did err concerning the Alemanni. And let me say before I explain that, that Clifton wrote these short essays, these papers, which were separate from his regular Watchman's teaching letters. The Watchman's teaching letter had a set number of pages each month, but it was rather an open format. Clifton could go as far with his subject as one eight-column issue could hold, and then he could just break it off for, for next month and go on for as long as he wanted. But his short papers were meant to be topical. Most of them were meant to address heresies or, or Judeo-church heresies that were creeping into Christian identity, which happens very often, sadly. And Clifton was addressing those heresies in a set number of eight columns on both sides of an eight and a half by by 14 sheet of paper, or six columns sometimes on both sides of an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. So those eight column papers might fit, if I remember correctly, they might fit 35, 3,600 words. And Clifton went to great pains using um, letter kerning and spaces between letters and spaces, the distance of spaces between letters and words, and the distance of spaces between lines of text. He went to great pains to make sure that he could fit his paper onto those eight columns of an eight and a half by 14 inch sheet of paper. He was very technical about that. He was almost anal about that. He was so technical. And I know because I struggled with him to just get one more. Clifton, you got to add this one more sentence while I was proofreading for him. Clifton, this sentence has to be added. You have to explain this. So very often his language was very terse. And, and because of the format, he wanted to get the message across. But perhaps he didn't always say everything that could have been said in the open format of the internet where it doesn't matter how long or how many words one of my podcasts have. It doesn't matter.
It's a whole totally different format. If I had to squeeze every podcast into eight columns of, of a 14-inch piece of paper, it would be very difficult for me to determine what to address and what not when I had to cover the entire subject on one piece of paper. So that was always Clifton's challenge. He did very well with it, but that is why sometimes his notes are very concise. He's not really expounding. He just makes a little statement and he moves on. So that being said, that's why this particular note is so short. He just said the three kingdoms equal Italy, Africa, Spain, but not the Alemanni. And the ten-toed provinces equal ten horns, which I don't necessarily agree with, but let's let that go because it's not really that important. The main points of the prophecy, Clifton is certainly correct about. Now, of course, this note which Clifton made reflects a diverse opinion from that of Fowler. Fowler certainly was wrong concerning the Alemanni. As for Roman provinces, there were 10 Roman senatorial provinces at the time of Christ, which were the core of the empire, and its governors, their governors, were chosen by the Roman Senate. And the number of all the other provinces, which were imperial provinces governed by the emperor, so the emperor chose their governors, was greater. Sometimes, I think it was up to 27, 28, I forget, I really don't remember. But it had varied throughout the course of the empire. I believe it was at its peak in the time of Hadrian. So we may count the ten toes as the senatorial provinces. Excluding Italy itself, which was governed directly by the Senate. So the Senate and the people of Rome really had 11 provinces. Italy plus 10 provinces. While the ten toes of Daniel chapter 2 seem to indicate these 10 provinces, which were the core of the empire, the ten horns of Daniel chapter 7 seem to indicate 10 kingdoms, which resulted from the fracture of the toes. But Clifton wanted to equate them. In 530 AD, Gelimer who would be the last king of the Vandals and Alans in Africa, the Germanic tribes which crossed over into Roman Africa and conquered it for themselves. Gelimer had deposed his own cousin, Hilderic, from the throne. But the Byzantines were allied with Hilderic, and in response to Gelimer's actions, they invaded Africa near Carthage, in 533, Gelimer did not have any alliance with the Goths as he was defeated in two subsequent battles. And taking flight, he was compelled to surrender the following year. Then in the years 535 to 553 AD, that's an 18-year period, the Byzantines invaded Italy through Dalmatia and defeated the Gothic kings Vitiges and then Totila 
in Italy. So they were able to reestablish Dalmatia, Italy, and Roman Africa for the empire. We must agree with Clifton that the Byzantines did not conquer the Alemanni at this time. Rather, as they were still waging war against the Goths in Italy in 553 AD, or perhaps 554, they were forced to defend themselves against the Franks and Alemanni who had invaded Italy from the north. The Byzantines repelled them successfully, but they did not subdue or rule over them. Finally, in 550 AD, there was a revolt among the citizens of Cordoba in Spain against Aguila I, who was the king of the Visigoths in Spain, and Aguila was defeated. Another Gothic nobleman, Athanagild, rose up and took Seville, announcing for himself to be in a king in opposition to Aguila. After a struggle, the Byzantines became involved and invaded Spain in 555 AD. Upon their success in taking coastal cities, although the inhabitants of some of those cities remained loyal to the Goths, supporters of Aguila had turned and killed him, and therefore Athanagild became the unchallenged king of the Visigoths in Spain. The Byzantines, however, were only able to hold on to their possessions in Spain for another 70 years, while never being able to fully restore it to Rome. In any event, we can count three kings, or three thrones, which had ruled over toes of the former Roman Empire, that were uprooted by the Byzantines under Justinian, that of Gelimer in Africa, that of Vitiges and his successor Totila in Italy, and that of Aguila in Spain. We certainly agree with Fowler that Justinian was indeed the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, and is not only identified by the military conquests which were achieved by his generals, but also by the civic accomplishments which he had while in office that are now explained as Clifton returns to his citation of Fowler, which begins by quoting Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. And Fowler went on to state, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. That's verse 25 of Daniel chapter 7. Justinian's best-known work was as a codifier and legislator. He greatly stimulated legal studies and set up a commission under Tribonian, which issued the Codex, the Digest, and the Institutes three portions of Justinian's law. Originally introduced in December of 534 AD and completed in 538 AD. 
the second edition of the Codex contained Justinian's own laws known as the novels, the novelle constitutions. Novels means new, novelle constitutions, new constitutions. They were new laws. They were Justinian's own laws. One need only read the utterance of Pope Innocent III in the 13th century and his immediate successors to recognize the fulfillment of speaking great words against the Most High. Study the history of the Inquisition with its massacres, martyrdoms, and every kind of persecution to substantiate this interpretation. And of course, it wasn't only Jews who were being persecuted during the Inquisition. Fowler directs his readers to Haley's Bible Handbook and its chapter on church history. I've never read that. I think it's here on the shelf somewhere, but I probably may never read it. It's just not my cup of tea. While Justinian's novels were new, which is why they were called novels in the first place, they nevertheless had the full force and effect of law throughout the empire. So what follows is from a portion of our commentary on John chapter 2, which I had given here in September of 2018. The following citations are from the enactments of Justinian. The novels, the novels number, I guess this would be called book or law or whatever, novel number 131. There will be links to the actual archive site that preserves this at Droit Romaine University. It looks like the University of Grenoble in France preserves this from the URL. And there will be links to that with this presentation, just as I included those links in my commentary on John chapter 2. I believe that segment of my, qual of, of my commentary, if I'm not mistaken, that segment of my commentary was titled Challenging Orthodoxy, and that had a twofold meaning. So here is what I said. The following citations are from the enactments of Justinian, the novels, Novel number 131, Concerning Ecclesiastical Titles and Privileges and Various Other Matters. From Chapter 1, Concerning Four Holy Councils. Now, these are the new laws of Justinian. And he says, Therefore, we order that the sacred ecclesiastical rules, which were adopted and confirmed by the four holy councils, that is to say, that of the 318 bishops held at Nicaea, or Nicaea, as I would pronounce that from the Greek, that of the 150 bishops held at Constantinople, the first one of Ephesus, where Nestorius was condemned, and the one assembled at Chalcedon, where Eutychus and Nestorius were anathematized shall be considered as laws, in other words, these four councils, some of which 
perceived heretics were ejected from the church and accursed, shall be considered as laws. We accept the dogmas of these four councils as sacred writings and observe their rules as legally effective. In other words, Yahweh God and the apostles of Christ and Christ himself, they didn't do good enough in the Bible. We have to have these words of later men whom Christ did not send, and they are supplying sacred writings. So their words are basically being put on a par with the word of God in Scripture. How evil is that? How is that not speaking great words against the Most High? And here we must add that once the state mandates the religious beliefs of the people, once it's not conscience every anymore, it's not conscience anymore, the state is interpreting the scripture for you. Once that happens, church and state become one and the same as the empire and the Roman Catholic Church had become under Justinian. And now you may understand why the founding fathers of the United States had been determined that every man should be able to worship God as his or her conscience dictates and that the church and state should be separate institutions. And we know in Israel identity that that's wrong. But we also know being identity Christians, that every government of men is going to be wrong until Christ himself returns to be our king. Once church and state become one and the same, we have, we have problems. We have troubles. And that's what happened with the empire and the Roman Catholic Church under Justinian when they started to accept church councils as law. And it gets worse than that. I went on to say in my commentary on John chapter 2 that now we must know that evidently in order to get the churches across the empire to universally accept the rules adopted by the various church councils, here Justinian was compelled to enact a law. In the early so-called church fathers, it is found that there was no such compulsion for any universal agreement of doctrine among the various churches. There never was until this time. So reading further, from chapter 2 of that same novel, number 131, concerning the precedence of patriarchs, Hence, in accordance with the provisions of these councils, we order that the most holy pope of ancient Rome shall hold the first rank of all the pontiffs, of all the Christian bishops. But the most blessed archbishop of Constantinople, or New Rome, shall occupy the second place after the Holy Apostolic See of ancient Rome, which shall take precedence over all other sees. In other words, the Bishop of Rome is being made by law the head, the, the, the authority over all Christian bishops. 
no matter where they are, within the empire, because the laws of the empire only had force in the lands controlled by the empire. There is no precedence of patriarchs in scripture. As Christ himself had said, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 23, but be ye not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and you are all brethren. And call no man Pope. Call no man Pope. <laughs> Papa. Call no man your father upon the earth. For one is your father, which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters. For one is your master, even Christ. If it were the will of Christ, or of the original apostles, for the bishop of Rome to have authority over the entire Christian world, then it would not have been necessary for the emperor to introduce a law 500 years after the resurrection of Christ in order to establish and enforce that authority. It would have been natural that Christians obeyed the bishop of Rome if it were the will of Christ and the apostles for him to be the head of the church. But it was not their will. So the emperor had to make a law. So it becomes evident that the second Roman beast, which is described in Revelation chapter 13 as having come out of the wounded head of the first Roman beast, the empire, was established in the laws of Justinian, had created, who had created the power of the papacy. And it is once again evident that Justinian and the beast which he created is indeed the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. In that manner, Clifton continues his citation of Fowler who goes on to say, if our understanding of the identity of the little horn is correct, then it follows that the papacy is represented in verse 20 of Daniel chapter 7, where it says, they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. The process, and, and I believe he may have been citing verse 26 there, and there may be a typo, I'm sorry, there may be a typographical error in Clifton's original text. That's in Daniel chapter 7, verse 26. Fowler said, or it may have been in Fowler's original text, who knows? He goes on to say, the process is still continuing and will only be completed by our Lord at his coming when the kingdom shall be given to the people of the saints, Israel, the white race, that's his parenthetical remark, of the Most High, citing Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. This is reiterated in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, when the false prophet, who is the head of the false ecclesiastical system, known today as the ecumenical movement, probable heir of Roman Catholicism, is defeated by Christ at his return and cast into the lake of fire. Now, we won't comment on that interpretation of Revelation chapter 19 here. However, 
as this is being presented, media agencies right now throughout the world have been announcing, and maybe this is the last three weeks, they have been announcing that the current Pope, this Pope Francis, this circus freak that calls himself a Pope that would rather kiss the feet of niggers than praise Jesus, they have been announcing that the current Pope has just recently expressed support for so-called civil unions, marriage substitutes for cohabiting sodomites. That's what civil union, unions are. They are marriage substitutes. Ever since the first popes ascended the power, after the decree of Justinian, the popes have been changing times and laws, as we read in Daniel 7.25, just as Justinian himself had done, in order to suit the whims of the empire. Now, the current pope is suiting the whims of an invisible empire, the empire of the Jewish international banking system, which rules over us all. Mystery Babylon. Now Clifton responds to his citation of Fowler, and he says, I would state this, those who do not have a comprehension of the subject, as explained here by William V. Fowler, should withhold any opinion on the topic until they come to a proper understanding on the matter. If one has no knowledge concerning Justinian and how he fits Daniel's prophecy. One should simply keep quiet for fear of the shame that comes by exposing their wretched illiteracy. In other words, if you don't understand this the way we understand it, you obviously can't freaking read. You have a problem. That's what Clifton is saying, that this is so obvious. If you don't get it, you are absolutely illiterate. He says, I would remind the reader, there was a time when I was woefully ignorant of these things. Of course, there was a time when we were all ignorant of everything. And now I'm ashamed of my former unscholarly opinions. I didn't have that cross to bear because I never got involved in biblical apologetics or disputes over scripture until long after I became Christian identity and studied the scripture. So I was blessed in that respect. I was raised an apostate Catholic, basically. Putting Daniel side by side with the revelation, Clifton was raised in Protestant churches and, and was actually a churchgoer and active in those churches before he found Christian identity. So his experience was quite contrary to my own. Putting Daniel side by side with the Revelation and with Roman and medieval history, the truths of these interpretations are fully ascertained even if there are some minor details of which various interpretations may still be debated. Yet few denominational Christians have not even realized the need for such an undertaking, never mind actually venturing to make such an endeavor. They would prefer to interpret policy according to their peculiar sectarian doctrines rather than according to history. So now Clifton discusses what they have done, what they, 
what these denominational Christians have done here in this chapter of Daniel in order to illustrate their error. The biblical passage that nearly everyone takes out of context is Daniel chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, which we will read at this time. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of a time. Clifton responds to the citation. This is one of the key passages futurists use to prove a future so-called Antichrist and a three and one half year period of tribulation along with the so-called mark of the beast. If our people understood history, they wouldn't be falling for such nonsense. All that futurist bunk was dreamed up by a Spanish Jesuit by the name of Ribera about 1580 AD, and no one before that time ever heard of such a doctrine. The important thing to notice with this passage is that we are looking for a king of a kingdom who subdued three other kingdoms of our people, the saints of the Most High. The denominational Christians would think that that was Jews, of our people during his reign. You will also notice we are looking for a king who, during his reign, had a very strong impact upon writing and managing laws. You will notice Justinian fits both of these qualifications. As we go along, the picture of the fulfillment of this passage will start to come into focus. <clears throat> now, not only did Justinian subdue three kingdoms, which emerged in the toes of the old Roman Empire, but he also fulfills the role of being the 11th king of his kingdom. The Western and Eastern, or Byzantine portions of the old Roman Empire, became permanently divided upon the death of Theodosius, Theodosius I in 395 AD. After him was his son, Arcadius, king over the eastern portion alone, and was succeeded by Theodosius II, then by Pulcheria, Marcion, Leo I, Leo II, Zeno, Basilicus, Anastasius I, Justin, and then Justinian. Anastasius I's full name was Anastasius I Dicorus. Justin, and then Justinian. So once we add to that the fact that he was also a notifiable codifier of laws, laws which governed Europe into modern times, the association is absolutely certain. That's from the head of that fourth beast. There would be ten horns and then an eleventh little horn who would do all these things. Justinian was the eleventh horn of the 
Eastern Roman Empire, once it became permanently divided from the Western Roman Empire, once the Western Roman Empire had permanently fallen, and the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, became independent of it for good. Continuing with Clifton, he says, I will now quote from the World Book Encyclopedia, volume 11, page 168, to get further insight on this subject. Justinian I, who lived from 42 to 565 AD, was the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Emperor from AD 527 until his death. He collected Roman laws under one code, the Corpus Juris Civilis, or Body of Civil Law. This code, also known as the Justinian Code, is the basis of the legal systems in many nations today. Justinian was called the Great. He recaptured many parts of what had been the West Roman Empire from barbarians. The Bible calls them the saints of the Most High, and the World Book Encyclopedia calls them barbarians. He built fortresses, harbors, monasteries, and the famous church of St. Sophia in what is now Istanbul, Turkey. And of course, they just converted that to a mosque. It still stands. Justinian was born in a part of Macedonia that is now in Yugoslavia. It's actually independent at this moment. It was in it was in Yugoslavia, I think, until the 1980s. His uncle, Emperor Justin I, made him co-ruler in 527. Justin died a few months later, and Justinian became sole emperor. During Justinian's reign, his wife, Theodora, tried to influence his politics. There's a real book. That there's a book called The Secret History, all about Theodora. And it was believed to be written by Procopius, a member of Justinian's court. And it is not very flattering. Justinian was an Orthodox Christian and tried to unify his empire under one Christian faith. He persecuted Christian heretics, those who opposed church teachings, Jews and pagans, or non-Christians. In 529, he closed the schools of philosophy in Athens, Greece, because he felt they taught paganism. That might be one thing that he did correctly. And persecuting Jews, of course because that's always the right thing to do. I'm, I'm sorry. According to the Greek historian Procopius, who was also a member of Justinian's court, and Procopius was actually the secretary to Belisarius in his campaigns in Africa and Italy, Justinian had come from a tribe of the Dardanians in Macedonia, which also places him among the descendants of that tribe which founded ancient Troy, the Dardans. Returning to Clifton Emmaheiser, in the early 530s, Justinian began a series of wars against the Vandals, Ostrogoths, and Visigoths, 
who had conquered most of West, the Western Roman Empire in the 400s. By the mid-550s, his armies had taken Northern Africa, Italy, and parts of Spain. And to that, I must add Dalmatia, which was also a, an independent Roman, con Roman province, but it was an imperial province and not a senatorial province. Clifton goes on, still quoting the encyclopedia. Justinian Code. Justinian I, ruler of the Eastern Roman Empire from 527 to 565, commanded ten of the wisest men in his realm to draw up a collection of the Roman laws. This collection is known as the Corpus Juris Civilis, which means body of civil law. Also called the Justinian Code, this body of law is recognized as one of the greatest Roman contributions to civilization. Of course, it's not God's law. It was a compilation of early Roman laws and legal principles illustrated by cases and combined with an explanation of new laws, the novels, and future legislation. The code clarified the laws of those times and has since been a basis for the law codes of many countries. The scholars who compiled the Justinian Code divided it into four parts. The Institute served as a textbook in law for students and lawyers. The Digest was a casebook. This is the introduction of case law as opposed to common law. The Digest was a casebook covering many trials and decisions. The Codex was a collection of statutes and principles. The Novels contained proposed new laws. Clifton says, in response, you will notice in both of these quotes, three kingdoms were taken by Justinian. William Fowler records them as the same as the World Book Encyclopedia, except for the Alemanian, which the World Book Encyclopedia calls the Visigoths. Now, Clifton is not exactly correct about that. I think he's trying to give Fowler a break. The Alemanni were in Germany, north of Italy, along with the Franks and other Germanic tribes, while the Visigoths were in Spain, and they were definitely distinct people. Clifton says, the Alemanni and Visigoths are different tribes of the same people, so there is no real problem. We have already explained this difference among his sources more thoroughly than Clifton has done here. So, returning to Justinian, Clifton is about to turn to yet another source, and he says, Justinian was corrupting the church and the state with his law code, so we will not completely understand this passage unless we look further. And he's talking about this passage of Daniel, saying that Justinian would change times and laws. To see how all of this happened, I will quote from the book Study in Daniel by Howard B. Rand, pages 182 and 183. Having discovered the identity of the four beasts, let us now note the meaning of the little horn which Daniel saw arise from among the ten horns on the fourth beast. The ten horns represent 
subdivisions or provinces in the Roman Empire. The little horn that arose among the ten, which was diversified from them, pulling up three, is none other than Justinian at the head of the Eastern Roman Empire at Constantinople. History reveals that he subdued three of the ten kingdoms which were established in the Roman Empire after the fall of Imperial Rome. These were the Vandals, whose kingdom had been established in North Africa, the Ostrogoths, who had established the kingdom in Italy, and the Alamanian kingdom north of Italy. And now Clifton adds a parenthetical note which said, not true, the third kingdom was southern Spain. So Howard Rand is making the same mistake that Fowler had made. Now, Dalmatia was also a former province taken from Rome by the Goths and recovered by the Byzantines in the time of Justinian. And they never recovered more than a very small portion of what was Roman Spain. I would not equate the ten horns of Daniel 7 to be the same as the ten toes of Daniel chapter 2, but that's one of those minor debates that may be considered subjective and can basically be set aside because the overall prophecy is certainly true and it certainly has been fulfilled in the series of empires ending with the fall of Rome and the arise of the Roman Catholic Church from the head of that last beast empire, which was Rome. So in any event, continuing again with Clifton, in the eyes and the mouth that appear in this little horn, we have a new power associated with the rule of the little horn. In fact, this power became the eyes and mouth of the civil and economic activities of the government represented in a little horn. Justinian, as head of the civil government, and the Pope, as head of the church, united their interest, and church and state became one. Finally, the Pope became the director of both church and state, and ruled as a great Politico-ecclesiastical potentate. One needs but read the utterances of past popes to recognize the fulfillment of speaking great words against the Most High as prophesied by Daniel. And Rand is exactly on the money there. He's exactly correct there. And that's what Justinian did. And that's why Justinian is the little horn of Daniel. Chapter 7, verse 8. Now Clifton reacts to this citation. Again, I will take you to Watchman's teaching letter, number 12 of April 1999, to show you the connection between Justinian and the popes of the Roman Catholic Church. This is an interesting perception, for the popes gained their state political authority by Justinian's law code by those novels, those new laws. And let me say that in the ancient world, in ancient Mesopotamia, in, in ancient Assyria, and in ancient Babylon, and ancient Sumer, 
church and state were one. That's why the idea of church and state being one again in the Middle Ages lent credence to the accusations by the reformers that the Roman Catholic Church was mystery Babylon. That being said, here's Clifton's response to what Howard Rand had said. What we are talking about here is an ecclesiastical political power with the combination of Justinian and the Pope. That is why this new ecclesiastical political beast is diverse from all the beasts that were before it. Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. I will now quote from Howard B. Rand's book, Study in Revelation. Upon the ruins of the ancient Roman Empire, there arose gradually a new and different type of empire, which became all the more powerful because it claimed control over the souls of men as well as their bodies, and extended its dominion beyond this life into the grave. And the Roman Catholic Church certainly did do that by taking money from people to get their dead parents out of purgatory, by basically extorting them. And that was why the Reformation was sparked by Martin Luther. Okay, I'm digressing. Back to Howard Rand. History has amply verified these facts that the popes claimed the right to temporal power, taking the place of the Caesars. While the eternal city under pagan Rome became the eternal city under papal control. How apt is the description of her supporter, as named by John, hell. This is Hades, or the abode of the dead, for though the doctrine of purgatory I'm sorry, for through the doctrine of purgatory, and this is exactly what it did, the church was able to hold supremacy and exercise tremendous power over her followers, not only in this life, but beyond through the fear of future suffering in purgatory. Now, Howard Rand had some shortcomings, but he was actually a pretty bright man. His major shortcoming, however, was that he wasn't too seedline, that he believed even that the Jews were Judah, which was something that I guess he got from all of his studies in British Israel, which is where he started. So Howard Rand has some serious problems, but in some areas he did very well. When I was in prison, I read his book, Studying Hosea. I thought it was great. When I read his book, on a study of the Revelation, I realized why I thought Hosea was great. Hosea was great because it doesn't talk about the fate or identity of Judah. So he had no need to mention Jews. When we got to Revelation, I was tired of Howard Rand very quickly because he did his best to apologize for Jews that he believed were Judah, in spite of the warnings that they were not. So, that being said, while we may not totally agree with some of Rand's allegories here, his remarks were certainly appropriate. While ancient emperors, including the emperors of the Greeks and Romans, sought to homogenize the religions of their subjects for the sake of peace and government compliance within their respective states, now 
rather than appealing to some idol in a temple, the Pope could claim the authority of the God of heaven, the one true God of our Bibles, while ruling as a tyrant over his people. That is how the little horn wore down the saints of the Most High. And he continually, throughout the Middle Ages, extorted the Christians of Northern Europe to fill his own pockets. That doctrine of purgatory Rand, Rand had described was one way that the Catholic popes had a cash cow, had extorted the Christians of Northern Europe year after year after year by claiming to have power beyond the grave. Give us enough money and we will get your poor suffering mother out of purgatory. Just keep giving us the money. Clifton continues to cite his old watchman's teaching letter, which in turn continues to cite Howard Rand. And he says, then quoting on page 49 from the same book, Church over State, Pope Agapetus, in a dispute with Justinian, the Emperor of the East, won his point and the Emperor yielded to the Pope. The head of the Church had triumphed over the head of the government. This was 536 AD. A Church Council assembled at Constantinople the same year and informed the government as a servant of the church that an edict be issued ordering a decision of the council executed. This was done, and thus church and state became united. Persecutions followed, which the church dictated and the state supported. 1,260 years of cruel torture and destruction now followed, resulting in nearly 100 million dying violent deaths. Of course, not all of the popes were so evil. And at the same time, the Roman Catholic Church did many things which we may consider to be beneficial to Christian society in Europe. But it never ruled according to the laws of God and the gospel of Christ, and it never taught true apostolic Christianity. Rather, the Roman Catholic Church and the portion which became known as the Greek Orthodox Church since the time of the Great Schism, had always been agents of the empire, and they were formed from a mixture of Christianity with the ancient pagan institutions and philosophies of the empire. So now Clifton continues by expressing a formula in, his, in, in the rather terse style that I had tried to explain earlier. 538 A.D. to 1798 A.D. equals 1260 years, not three and a half years. And that's true, but Clifton doesn't really explain why it's true. Because a year in prophecy, a year in prophecy, a day is a year in prophecy. And the fact that a day is a year in prophecy is elucidated by scriptures found in Deuteronomy and, and in the prophecies of Ezekiel and elsewhere. So that's, I'll leave it at that. Clifton says, let's go back to our original scripture of Daniel chapter 7, verses 24 to 25, and pick up the sentence concerning this period of time. 
and they shall be given into his hand until the time and times and the dividing of a time. So what he's saying is that the saints of the Most High would be given into the hand of this little horn for three and a half times. In summary, Clifton is expressing the concept that the beginning of the papacy as we know it was after 538 AD, or thereabouts, I should say was circa 538 AD, and the temporal powers of the Pope in Europe had ended with the French Revolution and the time of Napoleon and his actions against the Pope circa 1798 A.D., a period of 1260 years. So Clifton replies and says, this sentence is used by futurists, this sentence in Daniel 7.24 and 7.25, is used by futurists as a basis for their postulation of a future three-and-one-half-year tribulation period when a so-called Antichrist will set up his kingdom after a so-called rapture. Some futurists call for a seven-year tribulation period. As I told you before, the futurist theory was dreamed up by a Spanish Jesuit priest by the name of Ribera about 1580 AD, and the teaching had never been heard of before that time. It has a long and sordid history, and I don't have space here to go into much detail on the subject. But this portion of scripture quoted immediately above is one of the basic passages which they use out of context to support their theory. By showing you the true historical meaning of this passage, I hope to drive a nail into the coffin of this doctrine so that it will stay dead for a long time. What could be more of a tribulation than 1260 years and 100 million violent deaths, mostly of our people, meaning white Europeans. Some estimate as low as 60 million, but it is still a lot of people. This is the legacy of Justinian and his law code, along with the universal church. The Thirty Years' War at the time of the Reformation was a significant source of those deaths where there were perhaps more than 8 million deaths in a war that was primarily instigated by the Jesuit counter-reformation and Roman Catholic desires to once again control Germany. All throughout European history, the popes were meddling in the politics of Europe and instigating and taking sides in wars to increase their own power. Now, Clifton continues under another subtitle. Example of lack of insight on Daniel chapter 7, verses 20 through 26. Now that we have covered this prophecy of Daniel 7, let's take a look at some comments from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. On this passage, found in volume 1, while there are some positive contributions from the source, other positions are faulty. Hampering understanding. As I quote an example here, compare it with the evidence. The amillenarian, or amillennial, there's different ways to say it, amillennial, those mainstream Christians who do not believe that there is a 
millennium where Christ will rule with the saints for a thousand years. I, I gather that, that I'm not really up on all these mainstream denominational theological debates. I think that they are all just full of it. They're all wrong. So why should I get involved in it? Okay. The amillenarian view that the little horn has already appeared sometime in the past, but since Christ's first advent is wrong. This isn't Clifton. This is the Bible knowledge commentary, which must be sectarian, which must be the opinion of one denomination or another is wrong because no such ruler has attained worldwide status. No such ruler has subdued three of ten kings who were ruling at once. No such ruler has persecuted Israel for three and one-half years. And no such ruler has been destroyed forever by Christ's return. Nor could this little horn be the Roman Catholic papacy, because the little horn is a king, not a pope. The papacy's power has not been limited to three and a half years. The papacy has not concentrated on persecuting the nation Israel, and the papacy has not been destroyed by the return of Christ to the earth. So, that's the arrogance of denominational Christianity, that all of their stupid harebrained doctrines are definitely right, so every other interpretation has to be wrong for a whole list of pretty dumb ideas. Now Clifton made another parenthetical remark. He said only, this source hasn't the least idea who true Israel is. <clears throat> this is the folly of interpreting prophecy through church doctrine, as church doctrine is based on Judaized teachings, false premises, and false conclusions about Scripture. And that can be proven over and over again. But the people that wrote that commentary would never believe me. The interpretation, they wouldn't even believe Christ, the interpretation of the series of kingdoms described in Daniel chapter 2 is concrete. It cannot be honestly interpreted as anything but the succession of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome to world hegemony without being twisted into a pretzel. And so it is in Daniel chapter 7. We are told by Daniel himself that these beasts were kingdoms that would succeed one another and the beasts are described as having features which can indeed be identified with the respective kingdoms which, with which they should be associated. Then we are told by Daniel himself that this little horn would be a king that would arise after them who would make war against and prevail over the people of God until the coming of the Ancient of Days. So interpreting Daniel chapters 2 and 7 together, we must look for a ruling authority that arose out of the head of that last of the four beasts, the Roman Empire, which prevailed over the same people who had caused that empire to fall, as they are described in Daniel chapter 2, as the people of the Stone Kingdom. Daniel chapters 2 and 7 cannot be independently interpreted in ways that force them to conflict with one another as if the word of God is not consistent. Therefore, the saints of the Most High must be another identifier for the people of the stone kingdom.
The Roman Catholic Church, having its authority encoded into the laws, which came directly from Justinian, and Justinian also having fulfilled other aspects of the description of the little horn in his own lifetime, in that the identification of this authority is revealed in a manner which cannot be plausibly denied, and it also becomes evident that the modern Jews, who still deny Christ, and whom Christ had told were not his sheep, they cannot possibly be identified as the saints of the Most High. If we do not start with our own conclusion and try to force the Word of God to suit our doctrine, if we don't do that, then the prophecy itself will lead us to a correct conclusion, and we must admit that both the church doctrine and the Jews are all wrong. We should not read the prophets with preconceived conclusions. If we understand history and we do not read the prophets with preconceived conclusions, then the prophets themselves will lead us to the correct conclusion and we will realize that we are the people of God. Now, we will see Clifton's answers to the errors in these denominational Christian interpretations. But one must understand our Christian identity profession in order to understand why Clifton is correct. The answers to these blatantly false statements by the Bible Knowledge Commentary, edited by John F. Walvoord and Roy B. Zuck of the Dallas Seminary Faculty are yes, the little horn of Daniel 7-8 did appear in the past, represented by Justinian, and continued through the Roman Catholic papal system. Yes, the little horn did attain worldwide status in the prophesied Roman world. That's a problem with their preconceived notions is that the world is the planet to them. And the world is not the planet. The world is the Roman world that Luke defined in the New Testament when he said that Caesar commanded that all the world be taxed. Period. That's the world. Yes, Justinian did subdue three out of ten kings. Yes, the Roman Catholic papal system did persecute Israelites of Anglo-Saxon and European descent. You can't look for Israelites and Jews. Acts chapter 26, verses 6 and 7, according to Paul of Tarsus, the 12 tribes are not the Jews, and the Jews are not the 12 tribes. Why don't the Judeo-Christians believe Paul? That's a mystery. Yes, that prophecy was for a prophetic three and a half years, or 1,260 actual years. Yes, that papal ruler lost his power in 1798 AD and will be totally destroyed at the second advent. I only pray that Yahweh would get rid of Pope Francis tomorrow. Yes, the papacy represents the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. No, I'm not trying to make a prophecy. Maybe he should have got rid of Pope Francis yesterday. But maybe Roman Catholics need to be punished by having a 
perverted sodomite as their pope? Maybe that's a better answer. Yes, the papacy did concentrate on persecuting European, Anglo-Saxon, and related Israelites during that period. And yes, while the papacy did lose its ruling power, it will finally be totally destroyed at Messiah's second advent. In other words, Pope Francis can't force us to accept these damned sodomites, but Pope Francis is answering to a higher master that forced him or that coaxed him and his whole church, or at least a good portion of it, into accepting sodomites. There are some Roman Catholic bishops who are protesting and who do not accept sodomites. They accept all kinds of other sins. They'll marry your daughter to a nigger tomorrow, but at least there are some who still stand up against sodomy. So Francis's utterances are not representative of the of every Roman Catholic bishop, but he is their head, and he does set the direction in which the church goes, at least until he is out of the way, and then we'll probably get somebody even worse, I, I would think. It may be argued that if Justinian is the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, then how could the papacy be the little horn of Daniel chapter 7? But the answer lies in the fact that the works of a man are credited to the man. Justinian created the laws that ultimately gave the popes of Rome the authority over all of Europe, over all of Christendom, and there was no separation of church and state during that period, as the church and the nobility were intertwined. Returning again to Clifton, he continues by speaking of his sources, Walvoord and Zuck, whom he has also cited in his writings in other contexts. And he says, while John F. Walvoord and Roy B. Zuck of the Dallas Seminary got some things right on the dynasty of the Egyptian pharaohs during the time of Moses, they're as blind as a bat concerning who the true Israelites of the Bible are. While we should give credit where credit is due, likewise, we should give criticism where criticism is due. So here is the other side of the story. It is important here to know that John F. Walvoord was a student and later became the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, which was an outgrowth from Schofield's theology, which was formerly known as the Southwestern School of the Bible. This school is now a major contributor for the spreading of Schofield's views. This shows that sometimes truth can come from less than competent sources, because I guess Walbord and Zuck had the Pharaoh of the Exodus right, probably in Tuthmos, in one of the Tuthmoses. It should be Tuthmos three if they were really right, but they have this interpretation of the little horn of Daniel, are wrong. There are so many prophecies in the Old Testament which make absolutely no sense of which the fulfillment can never be realized if one starts with the conclusion that Jews and Hebrews or Jews and Israelites are one and the same. Then you could throw your Bible in the garbage, in, in the garbage, in the trash, because it is trash if the Jews are the Israelites. None of the prophecies become true.
For this reason, so many heretical ideas about prophecy have been conceived, and none of them can ever get it right because their fundamental principles are all wrong. But for now, we shall continue with Clifton. An allied school to the Dallas Theological Seminary was the Moody Bible Institute, both strongly supporting the teachings of John Nelson Darby, which has continued to pour fuel on futurism's growth. Out of this melee came the so-called pastor Hal Lindsey, a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, who released what was considered a blockbuster book, The Late Great Planet Earth. He designed this volume to be an easy read, and its 177 pages brought the lie of futurism to the American Christian masses, as well as the entire world. Hitting the press, the New York Times labeled it the number one bestseller of the decade, selling over 30 million copies in 30 different languages. By the means of this medium, it spread the lie of futurism, hatched up by a Jesuit priest 400 years earlier, tightening the grip of Satan's agenda on the minds of Christians worldwide. And that's a pretty good assessment by Clifton. There were early reformers who understood from Daniel and the Revelation that the papacy certainly was the beast which fulfilled those prophecies. And there is much artwork surviving from that time containing propaganda which depicts that very thing. They confused the beast for the Antichrist, which was an error, but the association of the papacy with the beast in these scriptures is true. And they got that right. So the papacy was forced to produce propaganda of its own in order to counter the propaganda of the reformers and to deflect from itself the clearly obvious truths in their allegations. <coughs> I'm sorry. Thus Clifton continues, and he says, Note what one Protestant writer had to say over 100 years ago. Accordingly, Towards the close of the century of the Reformation, two of her most learned doctors, meaning the churches, most learned doctors, set themselves to the task, each endeavoring by different means to accomplish the same end, namely that of diverting men's minds from perceiving the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Antichrist in the papal system. The Jesuit Alcazar, devoted himself to bring into prominence the preterist method of interpretation, which we have already briefly noticed, and thus endeavoring to show that the prophecies of Antichrist were fulfilled before the popes ever ruled in Rome, and therefore could not apply to the papacy. The papacy tried to describe itself as Daniel's fifth kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And that too is a lie. On the other hand, the Jesuit Ribera 
tried to set aside the application of these prophecies to the papal power by bringing out the futurist system, which asserts that these prophecies refer properly not to the career of the papacy, but to that of some future supernatural individual who is yet to appear and to continue in power for three and a half years. Thus, as Alford says, Alford, Bishop Alford, and a British bishop, thus, as Alford says, the Jesuit Ribera, about 1580 AD, may be regarded as the founder of the futurist system in modern times. And that's the end of Clifton's citation. Now he makes another parenthetical note, and he says, I cite this subject often in other papers. And he did, and I pray that one day Yahweh gives me the opportunity to expand on them, if it's important. So now Clifton concludes, it should now be evident to the reader that there isn't any prophetic time left over for a so-called three-and-a-half or seven calendar year tribulation. Besides, if all of the saints of the Most High are going to be taken in a rapture, how could the Antichrist, the way they interpret Daniel chapter 7, how could the Antichrist wear them out? Daniel 7.25. In other words, these crazy interpretations of the futurists have internal conflicts which prove that they must be wrong. And that is another doctrine refuted by Daniel chapters 2 and 7, which insists that the kingdom of God is already here on earth. If you read Daniel chapter 2, the kingdom which will never be lost, the kingdom which will stand forever, is already here on earth. We just haven't realized it, but it's here. And it's always been here. That kingdom as it says in Daniel chapter 7, will suffer until the return of Christ to earth, the return of the Ancient of Days. And that is where we're at. Today, Satan has gathered all nations against us, against the camp of the saints, and we have a serious nigger problem and a Mexican problem and, and a Chinaman problem or whatever you want to call those yellow monkeys. I'm sorry. We have a lot of problems. We have a sin problem because we accept the sins of the devils. They're able to do all these things to us. It's time for us to repent. But we are the kingdom of God, white Christian Europeans. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night. <laughs>